Well, if you'd turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2, we're going to read verses 12 through 16 this morning. Romans 2, chapter 12, or chapter, I'm sorry, Romans 2, verse 12. The Word of God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. In that which they show, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Lord, we pray you would add your blessing to the reading of your word and to the preaching of your word. Prepare our hearts to receive your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Brothers and sisters, it is good to be with you again in this book of Romans. And we are looking at the principles of God's judgment, the principles of God's judgment. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at this second chapter of Paul to the Romans, um, in which he is addressing the Jews primarily, those who are um, those who are with the law, those who know God's law, those who um, are without excuse, because when they judge others, they judge themselves. They're condemning themselves by their own words. And so we've looked at, um, really, a couple of aspects of God's judgment here. One is that it is righteous. God's judgment is righteous. He judges based on truth, based on his standard, which he himself sets, because God himself is truth. We also talked about how God's judgment is inescapable. In verse 3 of chapter 2, Do you think this, O man, that you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Of course not. The judgment of God is sweeping. It captures all. And then we looked at how it is imminent in verse 5 that there is a day coming, a day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, which is on God's calendar, and it is an appointment that everyone must keep. And we looked last week primarily at this one idea that God judges according to works in verse 6 through 10, who will render to each one according to his deeds. And he says in verses 7 and 10, there are those who will receive eternal life. And those, they are those who persevere in doing good. They will receive eternal life. And in contrast, in verses 8 and 9, eternal death will be rendered to those who do evil. Very simply, those who do good and those who do evil. But it's important, brothers and sisters, that we don't get confused about what Paul is talking about in this section. Paul is talking about judgment based on works, not justification based on works. Justification is based on faith. It's by grace through faith in Christ alone. That is the core doctrine that he means to convey in this whole letter to the Romans. And so he's not going to contradict himself, but it's important as we follow with him, as we track with his logic, that we understand he's talking now about judgment and God rendering to each according to deeds. So he's looking at the output of a man's life, if you will. He's looking at the fruit of a person's life, his works. And we saw last week that a person's works always proceed from the heart. Those things which are external, like 
words that others can hear and deeds that others can see with their eyes. Those are external works. But then there's also the invisible works, those that are invisible to the eye of man, but very visible to the eye of God. And those are things like the motivations of the heart, the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so works always proceed from the heart and God sees them all. And Paul summarized his statement in verse 11, where he said, there's no partiality with God. There's no partiality. In other words, he is not a respecter of persons. He is not somebody who receives the face of an individual, literally. He's someone who looks on the heart, not the outward appearance. And because of this, because God judges according to the heart and not according to the outward appearance, he is equitable. He is fair. He is a good judge, a right judge. We also saw in verse 2 that God judges according to truth. His standard of truth is set and it is unchanging. And when he judges all mankind, God will never distort any deeds that have been done. He will never omit or forget any deeds that have been done. In fact, they are all recorded in his books, which he mentions in Revelation chapter 20 at the great white throne judgment. The books will be opened and every deed will come to light. And as Paul prepares now for this next section of verses 12 through 16, he anticipates a question somebody might ask, which is this. Someone might say, well, the Jews seem to have an unfair advantage over the Gentiles, don't they? I mean, they have the law. They have the revealed will of God. And so they know what's expected of them. But what about the Gentiles, the Gentiles who don't have that privilege? Why should they be punished um, when they're ignorant of God's law? And Paul's going to address that argument specifically in the verses that we are going to take today, verses 12 to 16, where he's going to build on this argument of God's equity, his fairness. And he's going to say, he's, in fact, he's going to prove God's fairness in this way. God not only judges the deeds, the output of a person's life, but he is going to provide the standard or the rules by which everyone will be measured. And he does that in what's called the light of revelation, the light of revelation. People receive it in varying degrees. There are some who receive a little. There are some who receive a lot. The point is, everyone will know who God is and know enough to be judged by. So if there's one idea for today that I would like you to take away, it's this. Man is responsible for the light he has received. Man is responsible for the light he has received. And all men have received some light, at least some light. Because of this, no one will be able to claim ignorance in the day of judgment. And God's judgment will be equitable, fair. So let's see how Paul develops this, starting in verse 12. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Well, who is he talking about here? He's talking about two groups of people. First of all, those who have sinned without law or apart from law. He's talking about the Gentiles. And then those who sin in the law or under the law are the Jews. They will be judged by the law. And by the way, this is the first time that Paul mentions the word law uh, in this letter to the Romans here in, um, in verse 12. This is the first time. But as we read, you'll notice he mentions the word a lot. In fact, in the remainder of this chapter, he refers to the law 24 times. And in the rest of the entire letter to the Romans, he mentions law a total of 78 times across 52 verses. So you can see it's an important concept that he's going to be dealing with and explaining. Well, principally here, what is he referring to when he says the law? He's referring primarily to the Ten Commandments. And the reason we know that is because if you look at verse 21 of chapter 2, he mentions uh, stealing. If you look at verse 22, he mentions adultery. So two of the Ten Commandments he lists there. And then in chapter 13 of Romans, he actually lists um, commandments number 6 through 10. He mentions murder, adultery, stealing, lying, and coveting. So in Paul's mind, and addressing the Jews, primarily he's referring to 
the law of Moses, and he's referring to specifically the Ten Commandments. But something to keep in mind as we develop this concept of the law and as we, as we study through Romans is the law has a broader reference as well. In fact, um, if you look at the third chapter of Romans, in verse 19, Paul is referring back to a number of scriptures that he quotes from verses 10 through 18. And he quotes from Psalm, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Isaiah. And he says in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, referring to those passages. So clearly the law is more than just the Mosaic law. In fact, law in Hebrew is the word Torah, uh, which I'm sure most of us have heard. And the Torah means teaching. It means the instruction. So to the Jews, the Torah was the Pentateuch. It was the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But in a greater sense, the teachings of God are what? Really all scripture, right? So keep that in mind. But in this particular concept, he's talking about the Ten Commandments. And the question is, why, Paul, are you introducing this concept of law here? Well, the reason is because he wants the Romans to know that it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. All who have sinned will perish. Those who have sinned without the law or apart the law will perish apart from the law. Those who have sinned in the law or under the law will be judged by the law. So the issue is sin. You notice um, the focus here in the verse, in verse 12, for as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. So what is Paul doing? He's pointing to an axiom. He's pointing to a universal truth that God has established. Not when the law was given to Moses, but actually ever since the fall of man. You remember the Lord's warning to Adam in the garden. He says, in the day that you eat of it, referring to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die, right? So that's the rule. In the day that you eat, you will surely die. And we know the sad story that man did eat of the fruit and he died. And everyone in his succession, every one of his progeny, everyone who has been born in the human race since then, except for one, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, has been born a sinner. Paul articulates the same axiom in chapter 6, verse 23 of Romans, where he says, the wages of sin is death. That is to say, what is earned by sin, by someone who produces the fruit of sin in their life, is only death. And Ezekiel says the same thing when he says, the soul who sins, it shall die. So there's the rule. All born into this world are condemned because of what we call original sin, the sin of Adam. The law of Moses didn't define it. God defined it in the garden. So it doesn't matter if you're without the law of Moses or if you have it. The problem is sin and where is sin? In the heart, in the heart of man. So in answer to the question, why will the Gentiles be punished when they don't have the law? The first answer is this, because the law is not the issue. All men are sinners in their hearts, and that's the issue. So therefore, every evil deed will be judged whether they've had the law of Moses or not. Now, notice in verses 12 and 13, Paul is using the future tense a couple of times. He says, for as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. And then look at verse 13. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So three times he's using this future tense. What is he talking to? What is he talking about and pointing to? Well, he's pointing to the day of judgment, the day of judgment. But sometimes as we read this passage, it can be a little difficult to connect the dots because what we have to realize is that Paul inserts a parenthetical statement from verses 13 through 15. Your Bibles may have or should have um, a parenthesis starting in 13, where it says, for not the hearers, and ending in verse 15, their thoughts uh, accusing or else excusing them. So that if we read from verse 12 directly to verse 16, you'll see how this connects. Verse 12, for as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, 
And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. So you can see how he connects the thought and he has a parenthetical statement that we're going to examine as well. But he's looking forward to this day of judgment. Now, the beginning of the parenthetical thought in verse 13 is this, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Not the hearers of the law are just or justified, meaning not in right standing with God. It's not just the Jews who had the written law, the revealed law in detail, who heard it regularly. I mean, the Jews used this law that they heard regularly to condemn others, right? We saw that at the very beginning of Romans chapter 2. You're inexcusable, O man, you who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. What's the standard that this man is using to judge others? It's the law. We're also told in verse 17 of chapter 2 that the Jews rested on the law. They trusted in the law. Jesus said, you trust in the law. Moses, is. there's one who accuses you, and it's Moses in whom you trust. Same idea. You're trusting in the law. In fact, you are seating yourself in the seat of judgment over the law, on top of the law, when you judge others, when you don't realize you're actually underneath the law. The law is over you. The Jews had a very strong emphasis on hearing the law. In fact, the law was read in their synagogues every Sabbath day. Um, and where they take this uh, urging, this principle that they, they, they must hear the law really originates, I think, in the Shema, in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Listen to how Moses puts this in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 7. This is called the Shema, which is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So you see the focus on hearing and teaching others. They were to have the law always before their eyes, if you will. Whether they were rising up in the morning or going to bed at night or in every time in between in the day. Always observing and meditating on the law. And they were hearing it and teaching it to their children and to others. But you know what they missed in the Shema? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart first before you teach them to others. There are people today uh, who want nothing to do with hearing the word of God. But there are others who really like to hear the word of God. In fact, they, they enjoy preaching and teaching. They come to hear it, but they don't obey it. That was true in Ezekiel's day as well. Turn with me, if you would, to Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel chapter 33. Listen to what the Lord tells Ezekiel, starting in verse 30. As for you, son of man... The children of your people are talking about you beside the walls and in the doors of the houses, and they speak to one another, everyone saying to his brother, please come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. So they come to you as people do. They sit before you as my people, and they hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. Indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they don't do them. You see, 
There are those who like to hear the word of God, but they have differing motivations. Sometimes it's just enjoyable to hear somebody preach who seems to have authority and who speaks with clarity and with articulation. And it might sound like a nice song that they enjoy listening to. But when it comes to obeying the word of God, allowing it to impact your life and submitting to it, that's a different story. So the key question is this, loved ones. Have you, and the question to this man that Paul is addressing, have you conducted your life in harmony with the requirements of the law? Or do you just like to hear the law and the word of God? See, the Jew had a great advantage over the Gentiles, but hearing alone never justifies a person in the sight of God. And it won't justify you either. Actually, apart from the grace of God, hearing the word of God produces the opposite effect. The more light one has, the more responsible he is to obey it. That's the principle we're examining this morning. The more light one has, the greater the judgment. You remember in Matthew chapter 10 when Jesus sends out his 12 apostles and he sends them out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he says this in Matthew 10, verse 12. And when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. More tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah, where they were um, full of sexual immorality of every kind? Yeah. Why? Because whenever the word of God is preached, proclaimed, taught, men are responsible for that light. This is great light that we have in the word of God, but there is a response that we must make to it. If you just hear the word of God, but don't do anything, there's judgment. So the Jews, they had special revelation. They had the will of God articulated clearly in many words. The Gentiles, they didn't have that luxury. They had less light, if you will. They had what's called general revelation. God had revealed themselves, God had revealed himself to the nations through creation and through the light of conscience that he puts in every man. And we're going to explore that as we go here. But the point is that those who have less light and those who have more light are all responsible to the light that they have received. And that light is enough to condemn anyone, even the most remote person in the corner of the world. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Doer. Pitis in Greek. It means one who does something or someone who makes something or someone who performs something. So in this context of the law, it means someone who does what the law says, who obeys the law. So the question arises at this point, okay, Paul, are you teaching works righteousness again? I mean, it really sounds like it when he says the doers of the law will be justified. If you just obey the law, you'll be justified. But Paul is not contrasting justification by faith with justification by the works of the law. He's not saying a person is justified by keeping law. He can't be. He would be contradicting his whole message as we talked about. In fact, in Romans 3, 28, he makes a conclusive statement. He says, therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law, period. So what is he doing here? Well, Paul is establishing that there's two groups of people. There's those who hear only, and there's those who hear and do. Those are the only two groups of people. And he's stating that only the second group, the doers, will be justified. This is a principle that God has established in the Old Testament, and he's repeated many times. And it goes like this. If a man keeps God's law, very simply, he will live. Keep the law, obey, and live. Disobey, transgress, and die. The question is, can anyone do this? 
When we look at James, for example, in chapter 2, verse 10, he says this, For whoever will keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Why does he say that? Because the law is like a chain. It has many chains that are linked together, and it has integrity as a whole. So if anyone breaks even just one of those links of the chain, the integrity of the whole chain is broken. So it's clear no one can keep the law for righteousness. It's not possible because we're sinners. And if you sin once, just once, and we sin innumerable times every single day and moment of the day, then we are not justified. Trying to keep the law perfectly is a fool's errand. And we know, brothers and sisters, that there's only one who kept the law perfectly, right? That's Christ. So keep that in mind as we go through this. But now listen to James in chapter 1, verse 22. He says this, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And our Lord says in Matthew chapter 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says that those who hear and do are like a wise man who builds his house on the solid foundation of the rock. And he who hears and does not do is like a fool who builds his house on the sand. So if a man can't keep the law or do the law for righteousness to keep in the terminology that we're using in this verse, then why the plea to be a doer of the word? I mean, is there another sense in which he can do or keep the law and be justified in the last day, which he's pointing forward to? Turn to James chapter 2. I want to show you an example here that I think illustrates this point pretty well. James chapter 2. This is the example of Abraham that James gives. And look, starting in verse uh, 20, James 2, 20. And let's just read through the end of the chapter here. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out the other way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. See, James says something here about Abraham and Rahab, but Abraham in particular, that has sparked controversy for centuries in the church. In fact, so much so that people have questioned whether the book of James even belongs in the canon of Scripture. Because he clearly says, was not Abraham, our father, justified by works in verse 21? So it seems that James is saying a man is justified by works. That seems to contradict what Paul says when he says a man is justified by faith alone in Christ. So what is the sense here? How do we explain this? Well, it's the key is really understanding that James, when he uses the word justified in verse 21, is using the same word, but in a different sense from how Paul uses it when he says justified. How so? Well, he says Abraham was justified, meaning proved that he was justified by works. He was proven justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar. You see, James is referring back to chapter 22 of Genesis 22, when Abraham offered Isaac to the Lord. He did that as a work in faith to God. When Paul speaks about justification, he's referring to Genesis chapter 15, which James also refers to in verse 23, where he says, And Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. You see, what comes first, before Abraham was circumcised, before he offered his son in that act of faith in Genesis 22, what came first was Genesis 15. When Abraham believed God, 
God had said, I will make you a father of many nations. And Abraham believed that even though he was old and as good as dead and his wife was old and her womb was old and as good as dead, that God could bring life out of death and bring something where there was nothing. He took God at his word. And because of that, God accounted to him. He rendered, he imputed to him the righteousness of himself. So James is not saying that Abraham was justified by doing good works, but that he proved that he already was justified by the good fruit that he was offering to the Lord in faith. And it's in that same way, brothers and sisters, that those who keep the law, not for righteousness, again, that is by faith that we get our righteousness, but who keep the law out of a sense of gratitude and love for God, for Christ. They are the ones who are already justified and they're the ones who have the power and the will to obey God. So as long as we understand that distinction, this text now in Romans chapter 2, for that not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. That now makes sense. Because those who will be justified on the day of judgment are those who are justified here on earth by faith in Christ. Those who are justified by faith are those who produce in their lives good fruit, the works of good fruit, which they can only do, as we talked about last week, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Their nature has to change. Christ must indwell them, and he does his own good works through us, in faith, through Christ, out of gratitude and obedience. That's what he's talking about. But again, to the Jews, there's a warning here. Unless you keep the whole law, you will not be justified. And that's right. Paul is going to develop that idea back in Romans chapter 2 now. Paul's going to develop that idea that there is a way to keep the righteous requirement of the law. There is a way to fulfill the law by faith. And everyone who is a doer of the law is one who has fulfilled the law through Christ. In fact, he says it explicitly in Romans 8, 3 and 4. He says, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's it. The works of the flesh will produce nothing good, brothers and sisters, only death. The only way that we do good works like loving God and loving our neighbor as ourself, which Paul says in Romans 13 is the fulfillment of the law. The only way we can do that is by having the Holy Spirit of God indwelling us, the life of God in the soul of of a man. That's the key to Christianity. And so the main point here is Paul is saying to the Jew, the law, rather than exempting you from judgment, actually judges you severely because you know God's will. He demands perfect obedience 100%. And no one can come even close to keeping it. So don't boast. You have nothing to boast of. It only condemns you. Now verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these also not having the law are a law to themselves. So clearly here he is now directing the conversation to the Gentiles. And he says this, when the Gentiles by nature do the things in the law. Now that can be a little bit confusing. Your translation, if you're in a, a may say or should say, by nature, do what the law requires. That's actually a more helpful translation. By nature, if, if the Gentiles who don't have the law by nature do what the law requires, these not having the law 
are the are a law to themselves. So I want to be clear, we are affirming what scripture teaches that there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who does good. We've established that. But here Paul is saying that even the Gentiles, in some sense, do some good when they do what the law requires. Not before God in terms of earning favor or justification, but men. In other words, scripture teaches that people are totally depraved. That means that every faculty in man, the mind, the emotions, the will, is totally stained with sin. It is totally affected by sin. It doesn't mean that we are as bad as we can be. Not everyone is a Hitler or a Stalin or a Mao, as people often say. But we are all as bad off as we can be. We're all as condemned. Every society, even rural tribes, have more standards and they have a sense of obligation to keep those standards. Every single person in this world knows that it's wrong to lie, cheat, steal, murder, covet. Where do they get that? Well, God has given all of us a conscience to know right from wrong. Everyone has it. I love um, John MacArthur gave a story um, on this topic that... Um, I, I copied down because it was very good, I thought. And he was talking about a tribe in Africa that had a ritual for determining if somebody was telling the truth or not. And he said what would happen in this village was um, that if somebody stole something, they would line up all the men because the men were typically the ones who stole. And um, each one was asked to put their tongue out. And as they did this, a hot knife was placed on their tongue. And those who had saliva on their tongue um, were able to have the knife pulled off without a problem. And those who had a dry tongue would have the hot knife sear into their tongue and burn them. Um, why would the person with no saliva have no saliva on their tongue? Because they've got a conscience. And they know that if they've stolen, they've done wrong. There's a physical response to what is going on inside of them in their conscience. John Calvin said this, there is no nation so lost to everything human that it does not keep within the limits of some laws. Although human beings suppress the truth and unrighteousness apart from the grace of God, they still retain a knowledge of the Lord and his basic moral requirements that is reflected in society's laws. We should be grateful for this. It evidences God's restraining hand so that life can continue and the gospel can go forth. Everyone has this knowledge inside of them. Dr. R.C. Sproul said this, Before we ever took a breath, God planted in our soul an immediate knowledge and awareness of himself. This revelation is given apart from our reading the Bible or looking at nature. nature. Immediate knowledge, meaning no intermediary, no mediary is required. No one is required to tell us right from wrong. We all just know because God has implanted that truth in our souls. Now, the scripture teaches that we can sear our conscience as we sin over and over again. I mean, you can relate to that in practical experience, right? Kids, you do something wrong and you get away with it. Mom and dad didn't see you. And what happens next time you do it again? And maybe you do a little bit more. That's because you're searing your conscience. That's a bad thing. <laughs> Conscience is God-given. It's a, an alarm system that God has given us to know when we're out of bounds and when we're doing what's right. John, in the beginning of his gospel, says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the light, and the life was the light of men. And then verse 5, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, the word for comprehend there is overcome. So he's saying the light, which refers to the light of conscience, this little pilot light that God has given all of us, it shines in the darkness. Where is that? In the human heart. But as dark and corrupt as the human heart is, it cannot put out that pilot light of conscience. 
It will not, the light will not be overcome by the darkness. Thank God. No matter how bad we get, the Lord still has that light of conscience in a man. In fact, you remember when Paul was speaking to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5, he was rebuking them because they were doing something. They were crossing moral lines that not even the Gentile nations would do. Paul said, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. They were crossing the line and there were Gentile people who wouldn't even cross that line. Again, the light of conscience is in them. So there is a sense of morality among the nations, even those who don't know God. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law or what is required by the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Now, I know this can become a bit of a tongue twister. That's why I'm trying to take it in bite-sized chunks. Um, but what does he mean when he says are a law to themselves? How is it that the Gentiles become a law to themselves? Well, it's what we're talking about, that they have an innate knowledge of God in them. They have the standard of God's law that's within them. They know basic right and wrong. Earlier, we asked this question, why will the Gentiles perish if they're ignorant of God's law? And the first answer is, well, they're sinners. Apart from the law, they are condemned because of that axiom of the soul who sins, it shall die. But here's the other answer. The Gentiles who sin without the law still perish because they have the light of nature. That is to say, they have the knowledge of God, which is light that he has shown through creation. We talked about that in Romans chapter 1. He reveals himself powerfully through what has been made. Everyone can look at creation and see God is. And they can see his attributes, his divine attributes. He is powerful. He is beautiful. He is intelligent. He is wonderful. Hmm. So man has the knowledge of God that he sees in creation and, as we just talked about, in conscience. That's what's called the light of nature. And by comparison with the knowledge of the law, the Mosaic law that the Jews had, it's a comparatively dim light, but it's still enough to condemn. They're responsible for that light. We read this morning in Psalm 19, our call, or excuse me, our corporate reading this morning. Psalm 19, 1 to 4, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun. So the voice of creation speaks loudly. It transcends language, custom, culture, place. Everyone hears the glory of God in creation. They know that he is. So in this sense, those Gentiles prove that they're under the law. Now, not under the law in the sense that the Jew is, but they're under the law in a sense, because listen to Paul in Romans 3.19. Now, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. All the world is under the law in a sense. How? Well, for the Gentile, he has um, the knowledge of God innately in him. He knows right and wrong. He has a conscience. He has general revelation. For the Jew, he has special revelation. He has the detailed will of God. So in both cases... They know, and all are under the law in that sense. Verse 15 of Romans 2. Who showed the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. Now, this is the end of the parenthetical statement that started in verse 13. Paul is saying, who show, who indicate by their works the work of the law written in their hearts. Now, 
Paul is not saying that the Gentiles have perfect obedience of the law in their hearts. That's not what he's saying there. What is he saying? What is this work or purpose or function of the law? Now, John Calvin gives um, gave a very helpful um, gave some very helpful uh, writings with regard to this point. He gave what's called the threefold use of the law. He said the law has three purposes. One, it's a mirror. Two, it restrains evil in the heart, and three, it reveals what's pleasing to God. So, as a mirror. The law gives the knowledge of God. It, it tells us who God is and what he requires of man. It shows us his holiness and it shows our unrighteousness, our wickedness in contrast or in comparison with his holiness. For example, the law says, don't covet. Remember Paul, when he made this point in Romans chapter 7, he says, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness except the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. In other words, Paul is saying that all the law did for him as a mirror was to stir up evil desire. The law says, don't do this, and he just wants to do it all the more. All the more. Same thing with us. Don't cross that line, little boy. He wants to cross the line, right? Don't cross the speed limit, big boy. And he crosses the speed limit. Written on their hearts. What does it mean for the work of the law to be written in the heart? Well, again, remember, the heart is the control center of the person. So it is the total man. It's what drives his thoughts, his emotions, his will from within. And that is precisely where the work of the law is located. In other words, the knowledge of God resides in all our thoughts, in our wills, in our affections. We know natively what is good and what is wrong, good and evil. Why is the work of the law written in the heart? Well, because man is made in the image of God. This goes back to Genesis chapter 1. Man was created in the image of God to glorify God. He was created not to be God, but to show forth God's glorious attributes throughout all the earth. That was his purpose, to image God in all the earth. For example, God is an intelligent and moral being. We are also moral agents equipped with a mind, a heart, and a will. We have the ability to understand, to reason, to think about ourselves, and to think about others. That's what distinguishes us from the animals. The animals don't have this understanding. They operate by instinct, by how they're programmed. And that's how we were able to mirror God's holiness in the earth before the fall. And... By the way, it's why God judges us in our minds when we suppress the truth. Remember, we talked about how he gives us over to vain, vain reasonings, to useless thinking, to a debased mind, a mind that is rejected and disapproved. And in addition to being intelligent and good, God is just and he's kind in how he has dominion over all the earth and how he rules. And so that's why he puts in us a sense of justice and kindness as we have dominion over the earth. So how do we show or indicate the work of the law written in our hearts? Well, Paul's answer is this. Their conscience bears witness. That's the alarm system I mentioned. It goes off whenever a deed which proceeds from the heart is not consistent with the will of God. It violates the will. And so he says, and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. Another translation for that that's helpful is, and their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. So this idea is bouncing back and forth, accusing, excusing, guilty, not guilty depending on what we're doing, depending on what we're thinking, the output of our lives that God sees. We're either violating or affirming the knowledge of God and his right standard or not. And then he now concludes 
verse 16, which connects back to verse 12, with in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. We know that there is a day coming when God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. And he says that he will accomplish this by a specific person, by Jesus Christ. He is the one to whom all judgment has been committed. Listen to John 5.22. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And in Acts 17.30 and 31, which was one of our verses from our catechism this morning, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He gives, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So Christ is the appointed judge. And Paul says, according to my gospel, according to my gospel, now, <laughs> question is, is this be, Paul's version of the gospel, some different version from the gospel that he talks about? No, no. Paul's saying he's affirming the same thing he's been affirming all along in this letter. He says he's preaching the gospel of God in verse 1 of chapter 1. He's preaching the gospel of his son in verse 9 of chapter 1. And he says the gospel of Christ in verse 16 of chapter 1. Paul has simply made this his own. This gospel is his. He owns it. He loves it. Because he is owned by the Christ of the gospel. You remember how he opens the letter? Paul, a slave of Christ. Christ is his master. He is his slave. And so the gospel that is so dear and precious, Paul owns and he preaches with his inner man. He is fully engaged. He is falling in line, if you will, with the faithful and the faith that is once delivered for all to the saints, as Jude says. Now, what does the gospel have to do with judgments? <laughs> I think a lot of times people have those in two different categories. There's God's judgment, then there's gospel. Well, the two are very related. Number one, Jesus has been appointed judge, and that's part of the gospel. He humiliated himself. He willingly was humiliated. He took on flesh. He set aside his divine prerogatives for a season and, and came to earth and took on flesh that he might represent man fully and be treated shamefully, even to the point of death, the death on the cross. But because of that, because of his obedience to the Father and his willingness to humiliate himself, the Father has highly exalted him, the scripture says. And because of that, God has committed all judgment to the Lord Jesus Christ. This part of his honor, this is part of the gospel. We answered that this morning in our catechism question that Christ, his exaltation means his rising again from the dead on the third day, ascending up into heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father, and coming to judge the world at the last day. And there's one other reason that the judgment is mentioned alongside with the gospel. While it is a day of terror for the wicked, it is a glorious day for all the redeemed, brothers and sisters. This is the day that we look forward to. When Christ will return and he will reward all those who have done good. Not for justification, but because we are justified by faith. We will want the secrets of our hearts exposed. We, we want that for that day and we want it now, don't we? That's the prayer of David. Lord, search my mind and my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We want to be exposed by God because we want his transforming work in our lives. We want him to change us more and more to be glorious like his son. In closing, I would invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, which I think just underscores this day and this point that we're looking forward to. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verse 1, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. 
For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. Do you see how the day of the Lord is a comfort for all the saints of God? We look forward to that day when he will vindicate his saints. He will prove that we have been justified here on earth by faith in his dear son. For the wicked, it is a great day of terror. And so the warning goes out to them, repent, turn and live. Why would you die? We have great light. Think about this. The Gentiles, they have the light of nature. General revelation. It's, it's a small light, but it is, it, it is light. It's enough to condemn. And then there's the light of God's law. It's his special revelation. It's much more light than general. But it can only condemn apart from grace. The Jews, they, they read their scriptures diligently. They pour over them. But a veil lies on their hearts and over their eyes because they don't see that Christ is their Messiah. And then there's the light of the gospel. That special revelation with the most light. Because within the whole of the law, the whole of God's word, the gospel resides. Do you remember how the gospel was preached in the Old Testament by the prophets? Paul, Paul says that at the beginning of Romans 1. And how the gospel was preached to Abraham, Christ says. Brothers and sisters, the glorious gospel is encapsulated within the pages of Scripture. It is that which points uniquely to Christ as the Savior, as God's Redeemer, and as the fulfillment of every promise of God. And for all who will look to him and trust him, lean on him, not on the law like the Jews did, but lean wholly on Christ, they will live. That's the promise to you, your children, everyone who is, a, who is far off in every remote corner of this earth. If you will but look and believe, you will be saved. If you will hear the voice of the Lord, brothers and sisters, don't harden your hearts against him, as in the day of rebellion when Israel did that and God dropped them in the wilderness. Everyone, except for Joshua and Caleb, died. Hear the word of the Lord. Open your heart to him. You can only do this if the Lord does a work of grace in your heart, but it's still an, a plea. It's a, a plea that goes out to all. And so our prayer this morning is, Lord, open our hearts. Help us to see the glory of your gospel within your word, the glory of Christ, and to trust in him alone. Let's pray. Father, we love your word because you've given us a love for the truth. We thank you that, Lord, though the judgment is looming and it is a great terror to the wicked, that you don't leave us there. That's not the end of the story. There is great hope, great hope in Christ alone. You have made a way for man to be saved, to be brought back into relationship with yourself from his expulsion from the garden back into the presence of the Lord and to be face to face with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have removed the veil from our hearts. You've removed the blinders from our eyes. You've unstopped our ears and helped us to see and to know, to be convinced that Christ is Lord over our lives, particularly that he died for my sins. He was esteemed smitten and afflicted by God, 
The world looks at Christ on the cross and they see him crucified for his own sins. But he was crucified for us. The chastisement for our peace, the punishment that was required that we might have peace with God was laid on his shoulders. Praise the Lord. And he took it for us. Every last drop he drunk. Lord, thank you for your great mercy, your great salvation in Christ. We worship you. We ask that you would forgive us our sins. Change our thinking to be in line with yours. May we all have the mind of Christ. May we not despise this wonderful light that you've given us in your word. And Lord, may we go out to the world. May we engage with our fellow man, those who are lost just as we were, and give them mercy by telling them about the hope in Christ. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.